listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. So good to see y'all here today. We're in Daniel chapter 7. We've uh, back before the end of the year, before November, when we, uh, up to the end of November, before we did our Advent series, we went through Daniel 1 through 6. Um, and today we're going to pick right up at Daniel chapter 7. So if you would um, just open your Bibles there. Um, just a, a, a high note, um, Ron and Janet, celebrate 53 years of marriage today, and we praise the Lord for that, and we can celebrate that as a family. Ron told me, and I immediately went over to Janet and gave her my condolences, so, um, uh, so we had some fun with that this morning, but we also know that, um, and I, I hear a little ring, guys, um, in, the, in the sound. I'm not sure if y'all can hear it, but... Uh, um, we come today with uh, heaviness in our hearts, and uh, you know that's kind of the elephant in the room. We've got families that are struggling. Um, there's more that we'll say about some of that in our partners meeting this immediately after um, our gathering here today. As soon as the gathering is over, um, those who are partners or in the partnership process will be invited up to eat with us. We've got food up there waiting for us, and then after we've had time to eat, we're going to come down here and meet for a few minutes It'll probably be a, a shorter, abbreviated partners meeting um, just to try to deal with some family matters this morning, some, bring some things before you. But um, just know that our hearts uh, grieve uh, over several things that are going on. Certainly, uh, uh, we're concerned for um, Kayla and the Bailey family. Um, um, Nikki Andrews is in the hospital, and so uh, Michael and Charlotte are here this morning uh, dealing with uh, dealing with that. And of course, you haven't seen Clint and Joe here for, for a few weeks. And so just continue to pray for them as they, um, as they work through um, how the Lord's working in their life at, at this time. Um, um, my heart's heavy, and I know many of the hearts in this room are heavy, and I think it's okay for us to just admit that. This is not a production. We're a family. Amen. Um, and we're going to study God's Word and know that there is hope in the Scriptures this morning. So Daniel chapter 7. Let me just give you a little bit of uh, um, uh, introduction. Daniel 1 to 6 is narrative. Now what you say, what is narrative? It's just giving us this, this biography, uh, but they're just biographical snapshots. In other words, it's not this um, sequential biography of the life of Daniel. We're, we're, they're diving into certain sections that put the character of Daniel, put the uh, character of God on display to show the great God that Daniel serves and has committed himself to, and that's in chapters 1 to 6. But when we come to chapter 7 to 12, they are um, apocalyptic. I'll tell you what apocalyptic means in a minute. But here's how the book of Daniel is broken down. Because I've often wondered, why is there this break? There's chapters 1 to 6, and it's just like they're telling a story. And you come to chapter 7 to 12, and it's all of this mysterious 
symbolism and the shock and this all, what is happening here? I think um, that we, we're going to see the character of this man that we listen to to understand that when he shares all of this stuff that he's sharing in chapter 7, that this guy's not off his rocker, that he's a solid guy that he's a godly man, that God has his hand on him, and so that this message is coming from God. And so um, we are going to look at a couple of words. Let me throw them out there to you. First, The first word is, is eschatology. Um, eschatology means the study of end times. And there are a lot of people that have a lot of different eschatological views. Um, eschatology can be simple or it can be complex. Uh, most people that are serious about their eschatology will also break your jaw if you argue with them about it. I mean, it's just, it's just some serious stuff that divides. And if you don't agree with me and my eschatology, you don't believe the Bible or you don't love Jesus or you're a liberal or just all kinds of things. Everybody who has an eschatological perspective um, feels sorry for the people that don't hold their eschatological perspective. And I think that's wrong. Because I think there's so much about eschatology that we think we understand. Most of our eschatological conclusions are drawn from uh, presuppositional beliefs that we take to the text. In other words, this is the eschatology, the form of eschatology that I believe. Therefore, this text must mean this because this is my eschatological perspective. And so we're looking at eschatology. We're looking at, we're looking at end times. Secondly... Um, we're looking at apocalyptic literature. The word uh, uh, apocalyptic, the word apocalypse, it means the unveiling. It means the, the revelation, the revealing of things. There is this spiritual world. There is this transcendent world behind the stanzas of human history. And, and I want to just take a minute before we look at Daniel chapter 7 and look at the words of Jesus as it relates to um, eschatology and apocalyptic times. Jesus makes it clear, not only in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, this great passage on um, what we believe are end times, but Jesus comes uh, to verse number 14 of Matthew 24. And Luke 24 would not read um, quite like I wanted it to there. Matthew chapter 24 um, beginning in verse number three, they're asking Jesus about the end times. When are these things going to be? What will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus gives this explanation, but then he comes down to verse 14, and he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Right? So, so we, can, we can take Scripture and we can take our newspaper or we can take Scripture and we can look at the news and we can try to make connections between Scripture and the news. The things that are going to happen in the end times are going to happen and the thing that we need to concern ourselves with is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom until Jesus comes back. I don't think we need to spend time looking at current events and trying to understand some key that maybe was never intended in Scripture. The same thing in Acts chapter 1 in verse number 8, verse, verse number 6. And, and when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons, for the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. And when you receive power, you're going to become witnesses so please don't let that be lost on us as we 
look at this apocalyptic literature. It's, it's for us not to be right, but it's for us to be ready. Okay? And as we look at apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic liter- literature shouldn't make us proud and argumentative. Apocalyptic literature should make us humble, and we should be in awe. So, so let our hearts go there this morning as we consider the Word of God today. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse number 1, and I'll go through verse number 14. It'll break down into three parts very easily, you'll see. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. And it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Verse 6. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions of behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, which from, from which three of the first horns were plucked up by its roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, intelligence, and a mouth speaking great things, arrogance. The second section begins in verse number nine. As I looked, as I looked, he keeps saying, as I looked a lot. I think he says it nine times in this chapter. As I looked or as I was looking, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A steam of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand times served him. A a thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. In other words, Daniel couldn't number them. It was infinity as far as he was concerned. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Everything was done by the law. God didn't just pitch a fit and pour out his fury. There is a law that is given, and all that takes place is measured according to what has been stated and according to his good character. Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, this fourth beast, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, the other three beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13, we move to a third section. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom 
one that shall not be destroyed. Three things I want you to see this morning as we consider this text. Number one, I want you to consider the inevitable horror of human history. That's what he's showing us in verses 1 through 8. The inevitable horror of human history. Since the fall of man in Genesis 3, human history has been one power struggle and tragedy after another. And those power struggles and tragedies will not end while we are alive. I don't care what nation you live in. I don't care what political party you are a part of. There are going to be these power struggles and these tragedies that are going to get worse and worse. Human history is a tumultuous, chaotic, violent, ever descending into greater depths of sin and death experience. That is human history. And that is all of, that human history will ever be until Jesus Christ returns. But as we think about human history, we see this detailed description in the text. And let me just explain to you the things that we just read. First of all, the winds that are blowing are the winds of divine judgment. These are the winds that God is stirring among the sea of humanity. And so among the sea of humanity is this chaos and this turmoil and this, this lack of tranquility and lack of peace and, and violence. So these winds are blowing and the sea is being stirred up and coming out of the sea are these Four kingdoms, four literal, historical, or futuristic kingdoms that are going to be real kingdoms ruled or, or participated in by real people and ruled by some form of a personality we will see. The four beasts, the sequence is given to us in linear time. In other words, Daniel is here, and we've already seen this in Daniel chapter 2, this vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar. Now this vision is given to Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar understood that there were these four nations that were involved in this golden image with the golden head all the way down to the, the iron and clay feet. And so now Daniel is having this vision, and it's the same vision that Nebuchadnezzar had with just a little bit more detail. So there is this lion with eagle's wings, and, and essentially what we see with this lion is a kingdom that has the pretension of divinity. We know that that is... Babylon. We know that that is Nebuchadnezzar. We know that Nebuchadnezzar built these images and said, you bow down and you worship me. He thought that he was God in Daniel chapter 4. We also know that in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar was reduced to a beast. Thought he was God and reduced to a beast. He was reduced to something that was less than human. And, and it looked as though he had feathers on him because of the way his hair had grown out and matted together. But we also know that because he was like an animal, he also stood up on his feet. And so this is the Babylonian kingdom. Historically, this is the Babylonian. You can go back in history. You can set your Bible aside. I'm not encouraging you to do that. But you can set your Bible aside and you can understand when this Babylonian kingdom existed. And so he's, he's speaking out of that looking back on it from this vantage point that he's in right now. Secondly, the bear is, uh, notice the description of this bear. It's not a hibernating bear. It's not a fasting bear. It's a ferocious bear. It's a devouring bear. This is a nation that is ferocious and devouring and violent and destructive and aggressive and dominant. It is a greedy kingdom. This bear is greedy to grab everything that it can grab and ingest it. And this is the, the Medo-Persian Empire. 
second kingdom that followed the Babylonian Empire. Again, this is historical. The third kingdom is the leopard. This is Greece. This is Alexander the Great who conquered the world. You see uh, the you see the 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 four wings and the four heads. You see this kingdom going to the four points of the compass and Alexander the Great compass, uh, uh, conquering the world, but then dying at a very early age and having four different people to take over for him in four different regions. But then finally, there is this fourth beast that we would say, one view is that this fourth beast is Rome. Is it, is it Rome, the historical Rome that we know, or is it a few, some futuristic form of Rome? I want to suggest to you that it probably encompasses both. It encompasses uh, historical Rome, but it encompasses something that is going to look like this great kingdom in the future. And I can explain that to you here in just a minute. The reason I would say that is because this fourth beast has nothing in human history that can compare to it. That's what he's pointed out for us in the text. There's nothing in human history that compares to the fourth beast. He says that in verse 7. He says it in verse 19. He said in, says it in verse number 23. There is nothing like it. It is different in terror. It inspires fear like never before. It is, it is different in destruction and wreaking havoc. It devours, breaks into pieces, stomps to smithereens, and crushes. It is different in power in that it has 10 kings. The 10 horns are 10 kings, and it could be 10 different nation states. Not exactly sure. Some people would say it's the 10 Caesars, historically looking back. They don't appear to be sequential because the one horn rises up and takes out three of the horns. The little horn rise, rises up. It seems like these ten kings, these ten horns are existing in the same, at the same time. It, it's different in that it has an unparalleled ruler that it produces. This little horn is different. Some would say that he is the Antichrist. He is intelligent. He has eyes. He is arrogant. He speaks great things. And he is profoundly influential. I think the striking thing about the text is that Daniel goes over and above to make sure that the reader knows that there is no comparable category for this chapter of human history. This, the fourth stanza of human history. It is in a classification all by itself. That's why he said there are these three beasts, but there's something different there's something different that I can't quite make out, that I don't have a symbol for, that I don't have an animal to represent it. It's different than the three previous kingdoms or empires. It's different in its viciousness. It's different in its scope of dominance. It's different in its unique ruler. Here's what Daniel is saying. This empire will be like nothing that you have ever seen before. It will be an, a universal empire that will make all other empires pale in comparison. It will be an empire without parallel in power, control, dominance, ruthlessness, and persecution. And some writers believe that it will be the last human kingdom, a kingdom that we haven't seen yet. The last human kingdom in which human evil and sin and rebellion will reach its burning point. The crowning moment of the sin of man in human history. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse, Daniel tells us, I believe that there is a kingdom coming 
that is going to be so gruesome and so terrible and so abusive that we're going to be shocked if we're living to be there through it. Now, that's the detailed description. You can read through that. You can assign those uh, um, uh, descriptions or interpretations to it. There are other interpretations. But what is his intention? And what is the intention of apocalyptic literature? We need to understand that. The intention, again, is not for us to come become people who are the scholars of details and figuring out all the symbols and the signs. This literature is given to us, this apocalyptic literature is given to us so that we will be in shock, so that we will be terrified, so that there will be an awareness on our part of what the future holds. The overall pattern of human history is moving backwards and getting worse. It's not moving forward. Human history is not making progress. We can, we can do all the climate control we want to do. We can initiate every policy that somehow is going to make things better and save the planet. The problem with the planet is not the trees. The problem with the planet is the heart of man. We are sinful people. We are fallen people. We are broken people. That's the problem with the planet. And sin isn't getting any better. That's why the Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. The only way that you can ever deal with sin is to kill the host. Sin is so terrible that its capacity for multiplication is, is beyond limit. That's why you say, I'm going to dabble in this sin. You can dabble in that sin. You can play around with a grain of sin, but it ain't going to stay a grain of sin. It's not going to stay something that you can lock in an hour while you're sitting in front of your computer like you're going to get in and get out of it. No, the sin that we mess with is going to get in us, and its scope is, is, is unfathomable. It'll take us to places that we never imagined that we could even possibly go and make us into people that we never thought we could become. And that's the point that he's trying to make here as we understand that sin is getting worse and worse and worse. Nations, by their very nature, are set up for conflict, conquest, and control, always and forever. Nations are going to end up dominating, devouring, inflicting pain. They're, they're going to end up in a time of dark, darkness and gloom and depression. The good news is this, that the, the convoluted backdrop of human history is the perfect platform for proclaiming the hope of the gospel. There is no hope for this world apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no hope for us among great leaders of great kingdoms. The, there are these great kingdoms that were massive and powerful and, and financially their budgets their, were probably, there probably wasn't a budget deficit. Their, their budgets were probably balanced. They probably had great politicians, but they were powerful kingdoms that could not offer hope or remedy for the problem of man, the greatest problem of man, which is our sin. And so the hope that we need cannot be found any place and from anyone on this planet. It can't be found in another human being. It can't be found in any king being voted into office. It can only be found in a better king. It can only be found in a better world that is not here yet, but it is coming. And when you're in captivity, when you've been taken out of your homeland, when you're experiencing persecution... 
when there is this attempt on the part of those that have captured you to completely eliminate through amalgamation your race of people. When you're on the front lines of lunacy and death, you need hope, and it is there, and it is more real than the deadly symphony of human history. I'm here to tell you this morning that while we see all that is going on and while we feel smothered by all that is going on in the world and while sin seems to be running rampant and there seems to be no cap on it and it seems to be out of control and it seems like we're becoming, if you're a true believer, in the minority and it seems like there is persecution that's right around the corner, I want to tell you that there is hope. So we see in, in, in verses 1 to 8, the inevitable horror of human history. Our hope is not in human history turning in the right direction. Notice, if you will, the second thing that we see, and it is the unassailable judge of human history. There is the inevitable horror of human history, and that is not going to change with, with, within the confines of this world of hum, humanity. But there is, a, there is a judge, the unassailable judge of human history. He says, I saw, I was looking nine times, he says that. And he says, I see three scenes. I see three fascinating scenes. Scene one is the Ancient of Days. Who is the Ancient of Days? The Ancient of Days is God. Stop and soak that in for a minute. We're, we're walking into this throne room where God is ruling. We're walking into this throne room in the heavens, and there is a God who is seated on his throne, and there's all of this, all of this, the, the winds are blowing, and the sea is stirred up, and all of these kings are coming out of the sea, and they're more and more wicked. And finally, we see at the end of human history, this profoundly wicked king that is the, or leader or ruler or little, little horn that is, that is worse than anything we could ever begin to imagine. And then Daniel takes us to the Ancient of Days, verses 9 and 10. The Ancient of Days is a title for God. He takes us into a courtroom scene. And he contrasts the, the rising and falling of beastly kingdoms to the all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God who has been there all along. When Babylon rose and fell, God was there. When the, the Medo-Persian Empire rose and fell, God was already there. When Alexander the Great did all the amazing things that he did in conquering the world, God was already there. And when this either historical Rome or futuristic Rome, whatever it will be, when it rises and it falls, God will be there without a doubt. So the ancient of days in the courtroom, seated, and all is well. What does this convey to us about God? Number one, it conveys sanity. While everything is stirred up and everything is crazy and everything is confusing on the earth, God is calm. The Ancient of Days calmly walks into the courtroom and takes his seat. While human kingdoms are in a panic, the Ancient of Days never panics. The Ancient of Days is never surprised. The Ancient of Days sits calmly. The Ancient of Days is unaffected by the shenanigans of insecure world rulers. So, so, we, so we see this, this sanity, this calmness. Secondly, we see fury. We see fury. We see this fire. Fire is a symbol of God's presence in redemptive history. Fire is a symbol of the judgment 
of God. The court was seated, the books were opened, the law was clear, the evidence was presented. It was all in the book, and the just fury of God was righteously released against sin and sinful men. Thirdly, we see majesty. We see infinity. We see the supremacy and splendor of the ancient of days as there is this great crowd that is innumerable. You've got to get that picture. Here is Almighty God in complete control, seated in heaven while all of these things that are going on, the world has gone crazy, the world has gone mad, but God is seated on his throne. The second thing we see, and this is so comforting, this is so powerful. If you'll look at verse 11, we see the ancient of days um, in verses 9 and 10, but look at verse 11. I just want to read it again. He said, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. He's talking about the little horn, this king in, in, the, in the last kingdom. He said, and as I looked, the beast was killed. This little horn was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. This is, this is absolutely amazing. He goes through verses 1 to 8 to describe and finally coming down to the end of that section to describe all that is going on in the world. And there's this guy who takes over and he's the most powerful and most ruthless and most cold-blooded and, and the persecution and all that you could describe as nothing like the world has ever seen up to this point in human history. And all of a sudden, he is casually in the text disposed of. The ancient of days takes probably the most powerful human being that has ever walked the face of the earth and the ancient of days in a simple verse just disposes of him. He sits down, he's seated, and, and, and like a piece of lint on a cheap leisure, leisure suit. How many of y'all know what a leisure suit is? I wish they'd bring them back. Amen. I never had one, but Bobby probably did because Bobby's cool, and I'm not. But, I mean, here's, here's this guy that's got the whole world shaken up, folks. Here, here's this guy that's got the whole world stirred up. Here's this guy that's got everybody in the world scared to death. And the ancient of days, almighty, holy God moves on the scene, and this verse just makes it look like God is like, all right, man, I'm, uh, I'm about done with you. Boom. Boom. Can't miss this. The churning, the roaring, the devouring, the growling, the rib eating, the world dominating, persecuting, unhinged, unfiltered wickedness, steamrolling humanity. And court is in session, and the judge is seated, and the books are opened. And the worst man in human history that ever walked the face of the earth is just done. Boom. Don't miss that. Don't miss, in light of everything that is going on, that there is a God that is sovereign over all of it. Please don't miss that. I need that. You need that. When things come to our life that we feel like we can't handle, we, we've, we've got to go to that place that says, while I, my life is shaken up, I am torn out of my frame, and I do not know what to do, and I don't understand, 
There is a God that is above all of it, all of the turmoil, all of the chaos, all of the uncertainty, all of the evil. There is a God that is in control. The third thing we see in verses 13 and 14 is the victorious king of human history. Again, the inevitable horror of human history, verses 1 to 8. Secondly, the unassailable judge of human history, which is God. It is appointed a man wants to die, Hebrews 9, 27, and after that we will face the judgment. Every one of us will stand before God the judge, and all sin will have the fury and the wrath of God poured out on it. But there is good news, and that good news is found in a completely different king and a completely different kingdom. And these are two of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. I'll read them again. Look at verse 13. And I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, <laughs> with the clouds. Now, now, this, whoever this is, is that's coming is not coming out of, the, out of the, the foam and the waves and all of the turmoil and all the chaos. He's, he's coming from a different place. Now, here's what I believe is happening here. I, I don't believe this is the second coming of Jesus. And by the way, I may be wrong. And if you throw a left hook, I'm going to duck, and I'm not going to swing back at you. I may be wrong. But what we see is Jesus ascending the throne to be presented to the Ancient of Days. Right? So I believe this is after his death. He is ascending. He's riding up into heaven. He, I mean, he, man, he's riding on the clouds. This, is, this, is, this has got to be absolutely uh, amazing. As Jesus comes in on the clouds, he gives us this graphic description. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This is a description of Jesus Christ. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented to him. I believe that Jesus Christ died in our place for our sin. Jesus Christ was buried. Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And I believe at that point, and Jesus even said it before he ascended, he said, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And I believe that that his, the kingdom that he's talking about here that is this everlasting kingdom that is going to be this eternal kingdom that is going to be this conquering kingdom that is going to be this beautiful kingdom is the kingdom that Jesus is, has established. So what do we see here in the text? We see, first of all, that there is this presentation, verse 13. He appears as a man. He looks human. There is human likeness. He's not a beast. He identifies with humanity. He looks human, but he didn't come from the sea of humanity. He came from another world. He looks human, but he is divine. That's, we know, Philippians 2. Jesus came and robed himself in human flesh. The text seems to indicate that he went from earth to heaven, as I've already said. And he is a great king. He's better than any king you could ever submit or surrender to. He is a sacrificial king. He laid down his life for us. He is a loving king, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he gave up his life that we might have life. And he blesses all who will enter into his kingdom by faith. 
So we see this presentation in verse 13. We see this exaltation in verse 14. He is given. He doesn't take it. He has properly paid for this kingdom and more appropriately, the people in this kingdom. In other words, he is the ruler of this kingdom and he is the ruler over these people because he has redeemed them. He has paid for them with his blood. He is the rightful king of this kingdom. His father didn't just give him something. There is no nepotism taking place here. And it is an everlasting kingdom. It is an indestructible kingdom. And Jesus even said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. This is the culmination of human history. And then we see in verse 14, the celebration. There's the presentation. There is the exaltation of this great king, he says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is the everlasting kingdom. All other kingdoms will be done away with. And there is this great celebration where all of the nations are gathered, all ethnicities, all ethnicities, and this is our return to creation's purpose. This is our return to relational unity and to relational beauty with him and each other in this glorious kingdom. And he says what will be taking place in this kingdom is that we will be worshiping him. Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. The God who rules over this world is coming to rule the world. And that is a very good thing. I don't know what God you're serving today, but I'm telling you that whatever God you're serving and whatever kingdom you're part of, that kingdom's going down. That kingdom is going to be destroyed. There, there is the ancient of days in heaven who is sitting in judgment based on the objective standard of himself and every kingdom will fall. There will not rise up a kingdom that is going to overthrow God. They will all be destroyed. But at the end of human history, there will be one kingdom. And I invite you into that kingdom this morning. And Jesus Christ is, is the, the, the most amazing king. And he, he wants to be in a relationship with you and in fellowship with you and for us to be in fellowship with the Trinity and for us to be in fellowship with each other. And that is what you were created for and that is how you were created. Call upon the name of the Lord and come into the kingdom. By, by way of conclusion, um, let me answer, try to answer two questions. Why is this given to us? Um, it's not so much for insight as it is impact. That's what uh, apocalyptic literature is for. It's not for insight, although there is insight there. It is for impact. It, it's not so that we can set dates, but so that... The, 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 the text can seize our hearts. One writer said that th this text was given to hearten a beleaguered people of God. To hearten a beleaguered people of God. He said, seeing the secret behind history may not keep God's people from pain, but it should keep them from panic. We may be fearful and rightly so but we should not be frantic. That's why it is given to us. Don't panic. We are beleaguered. We are tired. We are marginalized. 
if we stand on the truth of God's word, we're not going to be loved by the world. We are going to be persecuted. Our lives may even be taken. But don't panic. Because there's a better kingdom coming, and I'm already a part of it right now, and you are too if you're in Christ. The second question I would try to answer by way of application is this. What should we do in light of this text? Why was this text given to us? It's given to us to wake us up, to shock us, to say, wow, that we might be in awe at the mystery of God. But what should we do in light of this text? Number one, see the kingdom of this world for what it is. See the rulers of this world for what they are. See the digression of human history and realize that it is hopelessly broken. Don't get wrapped up. Certainly, I want to be a good citizen. Certainly, I want to vote. Certainly, I have opinions about different things. Certainly, I love America. Certainly, I'm a constitutionalist. Certainly, several things that I've been all my life. But there's something bigger than all of that. And let us view those things beneath the umbrella of this sovereign God who is over and sovereign and coming with a better kingdom. Secondly, first of all, see the kingdom of this world for what it is. Secondly, let all that is not here at this time on this earth, um, let, let all that is not here at this time on this earth from these rulers and kings give you a hunger and a thirst for a better king and a better kingdom. There, there are things even in the heyday of America, which I believe I've lived through the heyday of America and come out on the other side of it. And most of us that are my age were like, back in the good old days, and folks that never lived through the good old days think they can pass judgment on the good old days. You don't know nothing about the good old days. They were a whole lot better than the days we're living in right now. And if you could go back and live in them, you'd like, man, I would love to live in the 70s and 80s again. Some of you would like to live in the 60s again. I know what you're thinking. But, but, but let, let all that is not here at this time on this earth from these rulers and kings give us a hunger for a better king and a better kingdom. Long for the kingdom that, that Christ is ruling over that we can be a part of now and that ultimately every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and recognize that Jesus is the ruler of the, the kingdom of this world. He is in control. I would invite you to come to Christ. I would invite you to be a citizen of heaven right now today with all of its rights and privileges and aspirations. Come to Christ. But then finally, I would say in light of this, preach the gospel. Invite others into the kingdom. I talked to a, a, a dear friend this week, and he, he owns his own business, and his secretary came up to his office, and he's got two or three other guys that do what he does, and and she said, there's a customer up here who wants to talk with him. And so the other two guys that are kind of his uh, protégés, they were busy. He said, I'll go talk to him. And so he goes down, he starts talking to this guy who needs the product that this guy creates, um, high-end product, very expensive product. And so he's talking to this guy, and as he sits there, this businessman who's close to my age, um, and he's sitting there talking to him, and he asks this guy who's walking in, maybe wanting to spend $75,000, risking a sale, <laughs> he says, do you have a Bible? And the guy says, uh, well, I've got my grandmother's Bible at home. He says, let me give you a Bible. He says, um, do you know what it's about? The guy says, not really. He said, man, this is the greatest love story that was ever told. And so he proceeds for the next hour and a half to just sit there 
and talk to this guy about creation, about the fall, about redemption, about the consummation, and explain to him about the, the person of Jesus Christ, about the reality of our sin, about how you can be saved. And, and th- this guy is just enamored and amazed. I don't know if my friend is going to make the sale. He may not. He may lose a lot of money by throwing a Bible on somebody and talking about Jesus. But he's really not here. He's really not here to get richer. He's really here to proclaim the kingdom until Christ comes back. What do you need to do in light of this text? You need to recognize that this, the kingdoms of this world and all that's going on in, the, in them are not going to matter, but what is going to matter is how we live out of the kingdom that we're already part of that is coming and everybody's going to see it and we need to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 24, 14, until he returns. That's our application for this morning. If you don't know Christ, call on his name. Come into his kingdom. When you come into his kingdom, it doesn't make the kingdoms of this world better. It might make them worse. But when you come into his kingdom, you have the hope of eternal life when he returns. And when all is said and done, we have a young lady up in, up in uh, McDonough and her mother, Michaela. Some of you know Michaela. Her mom passed away this week. And folks, every one of us is, is going to pass away. And, and the only hope in life right now, do this with me. Breathe in. Breathe in. Let it out. You're alive. The only hope in life or in death is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Her mom is gone. But she said her mom knows the Lord. That is the only hope she has is the gospel. And so I, I beg you this morning, I plead with you to believe the gospel, to come to Christ. That's what you were created for. And then if you believe that, invite others into this great kingdom with this great king. Every Sunday we do communion. It's our time to remember the Lord. It's our time to remember his death, his burial, his resurrection. We remember him just like this text is filled with symbols. Um, uh, Lions, bears, leopards, animals with horns. We have bread and we have juice. The bread represents the body of Christ. The juice represents the blood of Christ. It represents the death of Christ. It represents the gospel. It represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's our proclamation of many things, but I will say this morning, it is our proclamation of our faith in what he did. In other words, there is nothing that will bring me into a right standing before a holy God, not performance, not good works, not family heritage. There is nothing that will bring me into a right standing before the ancient of days other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ where the wrath and fury of God was poured out on his son and his righteousness was given to me. That's the gospel. And so we come to say that I celebrate the gospel this morning. This is what I believe. But we also come to say, wow, this world is chaotic and challenging and difficult and getting more difficult. 
that we're looking for that day when he returns and we have that grand celebration with him in his kingdom face to face and there will be nothing, there will be nothing like it. Nothing can compare to it. But we take the bread and we take the juice to remember him and to look forward to his return, to remember the gospel and to look forward to his return. I'm going to pray for us and then I'm going to invite you to come and we're going to sing a song and we'll have some basic instructions for partner's lunch. Um, I hope you'll stay this morning and, uh, and then we'll be d- dismissed today. Father, bless us now as we, as we uh, open your word and see the only hope, the only hope in all of human history is the Son of Man being presented to the Ancient of Days knowing that the Ancient of Days is satisfied with the death of his son as payment for our sin. I thank you that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. I thank you that there is a kingdom that is more real than the United States of America that we can enter into right now this morning with all of the privileges, with all of the benefits, and with a relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit that we were created to enjoy. I pray that we would find our joy in that today. Bless us now as we remember you in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to come this morning.